Hello and welcome to another episode of the Jellyfish Current, where we talk about all things performance, marketing, and branding with exciting guests from the industry. I'm your host, Shamsul Chowdhury, EVP of Paid Social at Jellyfish. And today, we're lucky enough to have some deep thinkers on this episode. We're talking about AI. What exactly is it, how it's perceived, and how brands can get ahead of it. I'm joined by two lovely scientists today, uh, Jellyfish's own data scientist, Amanda Lee, and a special guest, data scientist, Elaine Cosma from Camino Robotics. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for, having for having us. Of course. So we hear so much about AI, uh, the word in isolation, it paired with machine learning, and now generative AI. We'll talk about how all these things are the same, yet they're different, and we'll really kind of get to the root of what encompasses AI. And, and even more so, like, why is everyone talking about it now, particularly in our industry? And what's become so revolutionary in the last few months that it's, it's really front and center of all conversations that are taking place today? So before we jump in, I'd love to get some introductions for you guys to, to tell us who you are and, and what you do. So Elaine, we'll start with you. Uh, yeah. So hi, everyone. I have a background as a biological anthropologist originally. So I have a PhD in biological anthropology. Um, where during my research uh, as a PhD, I studied human movement uh, and I did a lot of modeling work. And through that, I kind of entered the world of AI and statistics. Um, and yeah, now I'm, I'm working in industry uh, in AI and modeling for human movement. Amanda? I had um, a similar background. Me and Elaine actually met in undergrad. Um, I also... I'm a biological anthropologist. I got my PhD in biological anthropology, um, but my work more focused around statistics and um, forensics in anthropology. And then I was a visiting professor at UIC, uh, University of Illinois in Chicago, and then became a data scientist in industry. And hearing about your guys' degree, I feel so undereducated. I'm kind of embarrassed <laughs> that, to, ha to have you guys as the guest. So it, it seems like you you, you obviously met and in, in through your undergrad, but like wh where did your journey with AI sort of start from and what, I guess, piqued the interest for you guys to really double down and, and lean into it a bit more? For me, it was really about uh, kind of figuring out that that I, I didn't fit in academia. That was the first part. And so then the question was, where did I fit? Where did I think I wanted to go? And what I realized is the part of academia that I enjoyed the most was modeling and answering questions. And, uh, you know, the way I see it, AI is just another branch of statistics. It's still about answering questions. It's still the maths of that. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the, the direction I went. Uh, I was very lucky because I started, uh, I got in contact with Camino Robotics and started working with them. And that was really a mesh of the two interests for me, meaning my previous interest in human movement and locomotion, and then uh, these uh, deeper deep neural networks and other applications of AI that I didn't have much experience in before. And I've been doing that for about two years now. For me, it was, uh, I think I, I got into anthropology because I, I liked how anthropology centers humanity, um, even in forensics or whatever, whatever you do. Um, and so I also didn't really fit into academia. And after leaving, you know, uh, data science and AI really was kind of a, it should be at least a humanistic study. So I think that's also what led me to 
uh, AI ethics is really just keeping human in the loop, keeping like a human centered approach. I also didn't fit into academia because I was just not a very good student, but I guess different reasons for <laughs> you guys. So with AI being so prominent in all conversations, it, it's not just all rainbows and roses, right? There's a lot of caution around AI and, and you know, what would you guys think in respect to AI is like the, the biggest thing that we should be aware of as it pertains to challenges, not only in the industry, but for, you know, globally and, and at a macro level as well? Um, I think very far out, like if we zoom way out, I think the, the biggest thing is we have to remember that AI tends to essentially amplify all of our problems and all of our biases. Uh, and yeah, that, that can be quite problematic, right? If you make your biases bigger, then you're going to have bigger problems. Um, just like, I think sometimes it helps to have a, a bit of an example. So uh, one of the most classic examples is um, a lot of the, the early work in using AI for recruitment and scoring people for candidacies for jobs. Um, we had some models that were being used that we found were uh, particularly biased against women. And that was something that literally the model had picked up because it was trained on human data. So if humans uh, were initially making that mistake, then the machine just learned to make the same mistake. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a just very simple way to put it. Yeah, I, I, I think Elaine kind of came in strong with that because I, I think that was probably a point we were going to drive home um, because people tend to fear AI and I, it has to do with a fear and respect for math and, you know, like, I'm not going to touch it. It's objective and all that. But like, as Elaine was saying, it's just embedding our um, biases, our opinions, our values, and then scaling it and automating it so that now we just have this kind of unprecedented um, reach and yeah, that, that makes it really challenging. I mean, there's a lot of cool opportunities too, but we just need to be pretty careful and, you know, cognizant that that is what we're doing. Yeah. And Amanda, when you, when you and I first spoke a few months ago, you schooled me on the ethics of AI, right? And we talked about <laughs> like, like uh, Meta and, and several other platforms that have gone these biases that Elaine mentioned. And, and Meta, this is back in 2019, I think it was, they got fined for like, the way that they built the algorithm, it had a bias towards minorities for credit, housing, and lending. And they had to change their whole algorithm saying, hey, we can no longer put uh, uh, gender and ethnicity targeting for these types of uh, verticals. Because what it was doing is saying, hey, we're not going to go after minorities. We're going to go after these people that meet these criteria. And it's really interesting because I, I, whether it was intentional or not, the algorithm was designed to say, hey, we think these people are, are better suited to be our customer while well, sort of alienating several others. And I think the example that Amanda, you and I were talking about was maybe Microsoft or Amazon and they're recruiting and they said, hey, we're looking for this type of engineer, which is always skewed male and therefore they only recruited male resumes. So uh, it's interesting to see like that's the positive in terms of how it's um, going to help scale that. But the negative is, well, you're discriminating as, as a byproduct. So in talking about those challenges on the flip side, what are the, the really cool things that we're seeing come out of um, AI? And what do you think that can really help in our industry as well as overall where AI can really lean in and make our workflows today a lot more accessible and more seamless? Amanda, I'll start with you. Um, well, I think that AI is 
very cool as a tool to make things more efficient. And as long as we see it as a tool, as an assistance, um, I think it can make a lot of people's lives much easier. Um, we can automate the tasks that not all of us necessarily want to do. And I think framing AI as a helper in that way, instead of trying to replace them for more human activities, um, you know, I, I think that that is a more optimistic way of looking at it. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's super powerful and there's a lot of cool applications. And I think that that's the most interesting thing about AI is really the application um, itself. Yeah. I think we've been talking about AI and it just dawned on me. We haven't really defined it, right? Like how would you guys define AI? Cause I talked about machine learning and generative mm -hmm. AI. Like, like how are those similar? How are they different? Maybe if we level set there, we can go into like the implications. So AI has a lot of definitions, but generally the, a broad definition is just any technology that's made to mimic human cognitive function. Um, and then with the within that broad umbrella, you have machine learning, um, which is just a, uh, a AI or technology that um, learns from historical data that you give it. Uh, and then within that, you have deep learning, which is using just more and more complex algorithms. And within deep learning, that's where Gen AI sits. So it's just kind of this little nesting you know, set of, of um, disciplines. I think um, maybe something that's worth pointing out is uh, interestingly, like if you, you know, if you read the literature and you see like, what is AI, et cetera, it tends to be something very, very broad. But what's happened in the human consciousness is kind of like the general public, let's say, almost sees the reverse. They say AI is a very specific thing. It's these you know, very complex neural networks, etc. And yes, that's part of AI. And that's in some ways like the yeah, the leading edge. It's the newest stuff, etc. But some very simple systems are also AI. Um, so that's just an interesting thing that comes out often in conversations. Yeah, because we've been hearing about AI forever. I'm 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 a gamer. So when you're <laughs> playing like when I play FIFA I'm playing against the AI, right? They're trying to mimic what I would do to play offense, defense. So AI has been around forever. But I think to your point, Elaine, like now people just think of it as like this really, really advanced thing. But there's, you know, quote unquote, uh, more simpler versions of it and have existed for a long time. And a, a very basic example maybe is like spam filters on emails have been around for a long time. And that's an AI-based technology. They're, they're not good enough. I get <laughs> way too much spam. They need, that's one thing they need to really focus more, more on and get, uh, get those spam filters to be more robust. Um, one of the things that I, I, we always talk about AI and, and kind of disassociating it as, you know, it's artificial intelligence and it's a robot, right? For general, broader terms. I was having dinner with our lovely VP of data science, shout out to Dee Wu, and she had dropped like a bombshell on us. She goes, what if AI is sentient, but they don't want us to know that they are? And I, that to me, I was like, "Like, I think that we got to take the check, please. We got to cancel this dinner. This dinner's over after after dropping that. I'm, I'm just curious about you guys. If, if, if you thought about like how sentient is AI, if, if at all, in, in your opinions? And, and, and I'll give you the example. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But the, the one thing, the example she gave, we're talking, we're talking about chat GPT as, as most people do nowadays. And when I was playing around chat GPT yesterday, I was asking for something about a certain client. And they were like, hey, I only have information up until September 2021 or whatever it is. Is it telling us 
that it has information up to there because they want us to think, oh, it's not smart enough. Or the scary thought is it does know, but it just doesn't want us to know that it knows. Um, the, the short answer <laughs> is that right now we're relatively safe uh, okay. in that. I think one one question that's really interesting is right now something like uh, chat GPT is something that humans write code for and mm-hmm. they they control the training process. They control mm-hmm. the learning process. We're not really at the stage where, uh, yeah, AI entities are teaching themselves, if that makes sense. There, there's right. no, so yes, maybe there's a world where that's possible. And I think it is possible, but it's not possible right now. So I think it's more like we will need to worry about this, but we have a bit of time. Uh, that's my interpretation anyway. That's a really interesting question. I think it's a cool question to get as anthropologists too. To be honest, um, I think as far as sentience, probably a lot of people have different definitions and that's where all these opinions come from. My perspective, I think that a big difference between AI and humans is that AI doesn't really have any, like literally skin in the game. They're not, they don't exist in this world. They don't feel like the way we feel. We give them those inputs and we specify their goals. Um, We control what they get. We you know, um, yeah, we define what we want to get out of it. Um, so yeah, I think like Elaine said, we're pretty far away from it because they, they don't exist like us with the same, um, I guess stakes. They don't have families or consequences, right. Uh, that would shape our decision-making and our experience of the real world. Uh, that's that's a valid point. So n- now that we've established what AI is and, and the different variations of it, what do you think are like the, the short-term implications and how it can be utilized in our industry in, in the short term, like the next six months? And how do you think that brands should be thinking about AI? How is AI going to be used in the industry or how is it yeah. going to be Yeah, evolved? used in the industry. Yeah. Used, used or evolved. Yeah, both. Used or evolved. I think it, so in marketing specifically, um, I think it's going to, we're going to see a lot more of um, AI generated content. I mean, I, I see that now within our company, right? We're going to have more natural sounding chatbots as natural language processing gets more and more advanced, um, probably greater personalization, uh, maybe some VR integration. Um, and more voice uh, commerce. So, uh, you know, voice devices are, AI-powered voice devices are increasing. Um, But yeah, as we get more and more data, more and more computing power, power, and this has all surfaced the public consciousness and industry is really trying to get into it, I think we'll see um, like an exponential growth of all of this. Yeah, um, I agree. I think it's, you know, it's, it looks like in the last six months, it's, grown up like crazy but I think it's just the beginning in some ways I think it's gonna yeah uh, keep expanding and it's it's yeah exponential growth uh, essentially so uh, and one thing that I think is gonna matter a lot in industry is gonna be actually all of the small consequences of using AI so if your company uses AI a lot you need to figure out how to talk to your consumers about it how to answer their questions you have to make sure that uh, people who are making decisions are understanding the capabilities and the limitations of, of their AI product. So I think there's going to be a lot of work around there to be done as well. 
really good point. And I mean, I was kind of chuckling when you were talking about uh, natural language processors, because um, there's actually a podcast on Spotify that takes Joe Rogan's voice because he's got so many episodes. They, they use him. They use like other famous people and they sort of preface like, hey, this is not real. We're just using AI and we built the whole thing on chat GPT. And it's pretty good. Like if you listen to it, and you listen to an actual episode, you'll see like the, the the way that they deliver the statements, it's not very robotic, right? Because like when, if you look at the first version of Siri, it's very robotic. They're reading word for word. There's no like crescendo, decrescendo in their wording. And I think as NLPs get smarter, it's very scary what can happen as that happens. Um, but we sort of played around with the, the tool, someone on our um, marketing team, there's a auto, there's an AI based podcast. So they basically said, Hey, we want a podcast to talk about this thing. And they produced it and we we're listening to it. I was like, this is pretty good. So job security, I think for me, in terms of being a host for an, for a podcast that could very well be um, going to AI in, in the not too distant future is interesting. And I think as we talk about like the short-term impact, a lot of people are thinking about that, right? Like what are the implications to jobs? Um, we talk about like, the creative industry as having uh, lunch with a friend of mine from Snapchat and his niece wants to become a graphic designer and she's 19. He's like, don't do it. Like your, your industry will be obsolete in the next few years when you have things like Dolly and pencil and all like, like meta with their sandbox and all these different um, AI tools that are pretty much making content that a graphic designer would have done today or several years ago. So it, it's interesting to see how immediately um, those industries are being impacted today. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think it's um, it's a very like uh, normal and human fear. But I think also if we just think about technology leaps uh, throughout time and jobs that don't exist anymore because we have technologies, like it, in reality, yes, in the short term, uh, people may sometimes, uh, unfortunately, yeah, get the short end of the stick, so to speak. But um in reality, like we're we're still gonna have jobs as we're still gonna have other jobs are gonna be created because of this. So I think it's just it's about shifting and how we as a society handle the shift. Yeah, and that's a great point, right? It's like there has to be just like with everything in the last several hundreds of years, as the industries have shifted, people have learned have had to learn new trades to manage the outcomes, right? So um we went from people hand assembling cars to the assembly line, but there's still people working in uh, car factories, right? It's not like there's no humans in a car factory, just that, that that's still a thing. And we sort of joke around and say, well, if our role was this today in 10 years time, maybe we'll be like a machine herder, right? Kind of like, hey, instead of being a, a cattle herder, we're going to know how to sort of tame the machine and say, hey, machine, you veered too far to the right. We got to get you on the straight and narrow realign the algorithm and say, this is what, what correct looks like. And that will always be changing, right? Because what's correct today may not be correct next year, let alone, you know, next month. So as as the machines do evolve, there needs to be, uh, hopefully, there needs to be some human input to realign what that looks like. Yep. And, and that, <laughs> that kind of, sense. and that kind of goes into like the, the long-term vision, right? So we, we talk a lot about like the implications, um, today and as those things evolve how does staffing right if we look at staffing at as a higher level how does that look like as we sort of hand more work over to ai to make those staffing decisions so do you mean like which what what the job what the jobs are going to turn into or what 
what the jobs are going to turn into as well is like, what would the criteria, like how do you set up the criteria to make sure you don't artificial or artificial, you, you don't oh. arbitrarily discriminate like, oh, this is a, this person's name sounds male. And therefore we know that our 90% of our staff is, is oh. male for this role. Like, like how can we get around that? So you're talking about hiring algorithms? Yes. Specifically. Uh, okay. Um, they've actually um, done some studies on that. Um and I guess it applies to a lot of AI that they use, um, and they're trying to prevent bias. But yeah, because AI has been used um, for re- for reviewing, you know, applications and um, for a long time, uh, this is a problem that they've worked on um, extensively. Um, so yeah, making it aware of its biases can be helpful. That's still a problem that they're grappling with. Um, sometimes, well, they're, they're thinking of using AI to check the biases in AI, but sometimes that makes more biases. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a problem that uh, it, it's still being addressed. Um, and I know that, that I, I saw a kind of experiment someone did where they were talking to ChatGPT and they were trying to get a review, um, a job review. Uh, for male sounding names versus female sounding names. And they were more biased when they talked about um, more critical, uh, different language when they talked about um, the performance of the female sounding names. And then they would ask it to check its biases. And it would check it and reduce it in some ways, but the language would still come out in other ways. So it, it couldn't completely remove the bias. And um, it's a it's a difficult problem because you can do that with people too. You're like, right. you know, you tell them don't don't be biased. And so they'll, you know, stop, you know, saying like these people are worse, right? Um, but then it comes out in other ways where um, you know, you live in different areas and you refuse to go in other areas and it, it just kind of like surfaces in different ways. So you really just have to kind of get at the root of the problem, which in case of AI is probably training data um, and I guess rethinking how you're going to apply the AI and what you're going, yeah, what you're going to do as a result of the info that you're getting out. Um, one thing that I think is is interesting that comes to mind about this is uh, Amanda pointed out the importance of training data, right? And so, and I, I when I talked about that other hiring example earlier, I also uh, pointed out to the fact that it's replicating biases that it um, mm-hmm. sees in humans. Like there are also ways that you can. Uh, whether or not it will work and to what extent it does work is another question, but there are ways you can essentially augment your data. So let's say that you are um, really particularly afraid that it's le- that your algorithm has learned something about male versus female na- names. One thing you can do is ar- artificially mess with the data, go into applications and train it with a set of CVs where names have been changed. Mm. between male and female. So there there are like tips and tricks like that that kind of get a little bit at the situation. So I think uh, that's one thing is is to really think about it at the development stage, right? When you're first creating your your model, you have to really think about, okay, are there things that I can expect to have a problem and could I fix it already? Can I prevent it? But then I think the other thing is uh, AI needs constant monitoring. For both cases, you need to constantly check 
what it's doing. Uh, because it, there's two things. One is that you might not catch a bias uh, mm-hmm. at first. And another is that what we consider a bias changes over time. Like he, our definitions of humans about what is, you know, and Western society of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, et cetera, uh, has changed so much in the last 25 years. It's, it's crazy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, most of us are very comfortable, I hope, and are uh, aware about like, yeah, laws around gay marriage. Um, but there was a time where, you know, it, it wasn't a problem to, no one would say it's it's wrong to not choose someone to be your employee because they're gay. And so that's that's also going to keep changing over time, I think. Yeah, and that goes into something that, Amanda, we spoke about in our initial discussion about ethical AI, right? So um, I'm, I'm a big fan of ChatGPT, but you do notice like when you search for certain people or certain topics that could have polarizing views, there is a skew towards the bias in terms of how those are written. So um, to, to refer back to the Joe Rogan podcast, they, they talked about um, if you search for Fauci, this is a few months ago, so I don't know if anything's changed, but this is a few months ago. If you ask ChatGPT who is um, Fauci, right, they'll, they'll give you like this whole thing. But the opening paragraph is so flattering. It's like if Fauci wrote it himself, he wouldn't be able to flatter himself as much. <laughs> it's like, it's like, so clearly whoever's written this, you know, has, is a big fan and, and thinks about all the work that he's done, all the, you know, the stuff he's done in the last 20 plus years is all good but you know some people not not to go the the conspiracy route theory but some people go down that route like hey with all the things that have happened in the last few years he played a part in it and and why is that not mentioned in the chat gpt results so how do we maybe there's no answer but like is there a way to possibly get both sides of a story and, and let the reader let the the consumer end user make the decision for themselves versus being swayed one way or the other yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. Um, so it comes back to a couple things that we've already touched on. Um, training data, people have already criticized ChatGPT. I mean, we know that biases are coming out. You know, a lot of it is the training data is coming from like Wikipedia and um, uh, most of Wikipedia is written by white men. Um, and so that's going to have a certain voice and there's going to be, uh, specific topics that are, uh, more fleshed out in Wikipedia pages and others that are ignored. And it's been criticized in the past for that. Right. And then when that's a training data, it's going to come out in, um, chat GPT. Um, this is kind of a side thing, but I thought it was interesting because it's kind of relevant from what you were talking about, uh, Joe Rogan. There was a study that just came out. I don't know if you saw this, Elaine, or if we talked about it, um, where uh, the researchers would tell uh, ChatGPT to take on a persona of someone. And when they did that, um, they were able to get ChatGPT to say some wild inflammatory stuff. So it's just like kind of little things like that where you can find little like ways to say, oh, okay, that's what you really, <laughs> what you really like yeah. in a way. Um, it's funny you say that, Amanda. We had uh, ChatGPT write copy in the tone of voice of Ricky Gervais for a, a, a high-end uh, jewelry brand. And the jewelry brand would never, ever in, their, in a million years agree. So we just, we just got to laugh like, oh, wow. Like if, if they said it in the tone of Ricky Gervais, like this is the kind of far out stuff they would see. So to your point, yeah, it, it can be swayed in one way or the other. 
for ChatGPT, I think um, to get good answers out of it, one, we have to be really cognizant of the training data um, and realistic about what it's going to give us. So ha have people educated about what exactly, how it works at a high level. You don't have to know, you know, calculus, whatever. Um, and um, just have a culture shift. I think overall, you know, this is all so new. And so people are like, I don't really know how to feel about this. I think we're in that period right now. Um, and once we have a culture shift towards Okay, you know, like we adjust our expectations. If I'm talking um, to someone um, like from Fox News and they're telling me things, I'm going to filter um, some of those from the lens of like, I know what perspective they're coming from. And once we understand how ChatGPT works, what the data is that's, you know, informing how it's responding to us, then we can interact with it in a more kind of with more realistic expectations. And in a way, I think that's more informative and true. Um, what I wanted to point out, that's like, I think very related to this and that maybe uh, average users of ChatGPT don't really realize uh, is that there's, there's something that is referred to as prompt engineering, which is literally, mm -hmm. how do you ask the question? And how you ask the question, you're going to get a different answer. And it's, that's an entire field in and of itself. And you have to be very careful with that. And it, it becomes really a skill to know how, how do I ask the question? Because, you, yeah, you can ask questions and get very different answers in terms of the general content, even though the question may appear to you to be the same question. Um, then on top of that, you have the fact that uh, ChatGPT doesn't do this at this stage, as far as we know, but these algorithms also have the ability potentially to learn from you. So they might know what questions you have previously asked, and they might essentially, you know, adapt their response by saying like, well, when, I mean, this is a simplification, like in human terms, but essentially they're saying, when I gave you this type of answer, you weren't happy with it. So now I'm going to try something different and you were happy with this type of answer and I will do it again. And you can create eco chambers through that. Uh. Um, so there's a, a real risk there. Um, but then the other thing in terms of like responses to that is that uh, there are interesting like avenues of work that are specifically looking at that. Um, and one application that I think is uh, very, very interesting, I think it's called Consensus. I'm looking, I'm pretty sure it's called consensus, but they, um, they actually, you can ask it scientific questions and it will try to find scientific papers and it'll give you related. So, you know, uh, does vitamin D deficiency care, cause hair loss? Something very like that. And they'll find a bunch of papers and then I'll try to give you a consensus, but it will also tell you there are not, a, there's not enough research to answer this question if it reaches that. Um, so I think there are efforts to build, yeah, algorithms that are better at being more accurate, maybe, and more neutral. Yeah, I think the prompting stuff is pretty cool that you mentioned, Lynn, because I know Microsoft a few years ago in their search engine, if you search, and the, the example they just use is people would search, is brown rice good for you, right? So they give you the results in two columns, like here's all the good things about it, here's all the bad things about it, or you know, potentially bad things about it. And you let the end user make the decision like, does the good, the, what's highlighted in the good column outweigh what's highlighted in the bad column and you make your own informed decision. So I think that the prompting is, is definitely very important for people to understand. 
uh, when we first started, Elaine, you said that AI is pretty much humans amplified. And just like humans, we have to keep ourselves in check. How do we keep AI in check? Both have anthropology backgrounds, just like curious. How do you have that lens to, to, to apply to AI? I, I still think a lot of it comes down at this stage to actually uh, not keeping AI in check, but keeping humans and corporations who design AI in check. Um, so at, at this stage, it, it goes back to my earlier point in terms of AI not really doing things for itself on some level uh, or limit. Yeah. Uh, and so what we're really asking is how do we make sure that humans don't make a mistake when they build an AI that, you know, um, yeah, has biases, has all kinds of problems. Um on some level, I think as a society, like the way we usually handle these problems are through laws. Uh, so there's all kinds of interesting uh, work being done on, you know, how do we do we legislate AI and how it's used, etc. Um, I think one of the big things is thinking about what are the potential problems and which are the ones that we really care about. So um, I'm currently living in, in Belgium in the EU. And here, they um, the EU has is debating passing an AI Act that would uh, change a lot of laws in the EU about how uh, AI acts, and it's it's not passed yet, and it's probably going to take quite some time to get there. It's going to influence how we use AI if it passes, because it's going to set rules and consequences. Uh, but some of the things that they've they've started to do is really outline what are the things that we're worried about. And um, some of the, the, the things that kind of keep coming back, et cetera, are, you know, AI that affects education is something we need to be very careful about. Anything that targets uh, vulnerable groups, especially children. So essentially, like the, the worst case scenario is like, you know, a child who doesn't uh, have a sense of, of danger yet. You can't have their... AI pal tell them that it's a good idea to jump off the roof holding an umbrella and they'll somehow float away, like in the movie. I mean, that's a very worst case scenario, but right. uh, it's it's about starting to think about those scenarios and starting to think about what is the actual problem, how do we define it, and how do we legislate it, I think is a very big part of it. I agree with Elaine. I think everything you're saying is, is spot on. Um so I think that something that's important to remember is AI is a tool, and I'm going to borrow one of Elaine's um, <laughs> nice, nice analogies. You know, AI is like fire, and fire can be great, right? You can use it to cook, um, you can use it to warm yourself, but it can also burn your house down, right? And it's not that fire is inherently bad, just like AI is not inherently bad. It's something that we made to do a thing, and it's made to do a specific thing. Um, so it's a tool. And once we kind of like de-elevate it from, you know, iRobot down, down to that, um, then we can start looking at it more realistically. As it stands, um, the most powerful AI technologies right now um, are coming out at the highest rate in industry. Um, Academia is behind, uh, government's behind, and the laws haven't caught up. And so it is actually, the onus is on industry right now to um, regulate, to be responsible and um, 
make AIs that, you know, the ones that are going to affect a large amount of people make sure that they are safe. Um, and the way to do that is to build a culture of AI ethics in your company, um, educate yourself. And I mean, probably one of the most important things is to have stakeholders in the room um, helping make the decisions and shaping how we build AI. Because as of right now, it's just a few key players at big tech companies, you know, that have a lot of power and are making these the most powerful AI systems because it's the people with the most money who can afford the computing power and who have the reach to be able to implement these technologies. And, you know, when you see bias and you see people that are adversely affected in those groups, you know, that the demographic composition of the people who are being adversely affected, that's not the demographic composition of the AI researchers in the, you know, the room and the engineers, right? And so it's important to remember diversity um, in all dimensions is key when you're making that to make a safer, um, more responsible and more robust product. So as we go into the second half of this year and we look into our crystal ball, what would you guys say is the new trend that's going to happen in AI, both for the second half of this year as well as going into 2024? Trend like new technologies or culture? World is your, world is your oyster. <laughs> However you want to answer that. Well, I talked about the technology that I think are really going to make big leaps uh, in the marketing sphere. I think and hope that... Um, as people are becoming educated, um, you know, there are programs that are starting to be implemented in schools that um, are about um, AI ethics, I've, I've seen, and that's really cool. And so understanding how these things work, because they've been um, kind of functioning in the background and controlling our opportunities um, in, in kind of like the dark for so long, starting to have that surface, and then having a big culture shift um, where we view AI differently and more realistically, and then start to place more emphasis on um, AI ethics. I hope that that culture is going to evolve. And then also, you know, the, the technology is going to evolve exponentially as people are investing in it more um, and we're using it more. Um, yeah, I think you make some very good points. Um, <laughs> On, so from my point of view, I think uh, in terms of what's coming up in, in the yeah, next six months, the next year, the next year and a half, I think uh, that a, a really big thing is that we're probably going to have a bit of a die down in the hype at some point because everyone's very excited. It's all new. And like anything new, uh, we're going to kind of become used to it. And I think that's already happened to some extent. Mm. Um, but that's just something to keep in mind. Like, yes, but as that happens, in the background, it'll still keep um, growing exponentially, I think. But I think it'll be less in people's consciousness. Um, that's one thing. And then I think we're just going to learn a whole lot about how we use it. And we're, we're going to have to figure out, yeah, how we use it, what, what it's good for, what it's not good for. Um, yeah, what are the best practices? Like, I think it's going to be really a, a learning period. Um, and I think it's really important to to keep that in mind, that it's new. It's, no one knows what's going to happen to some level. Like, we just have to, like, try our best and see what happens and keep notes, basically. Uh, I'll, I'll 
great intel. Really appreciate you guys and your time. But before we leave, I have to ask the question: What is your favorite movie that includes AI, like that discusses AI and robots? Movie, TV show. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> I I mean, growing up, I watched The Fifth Element a lot. So <laughs> I really like that movie. Um, yeah, it goes really deep. But I mean, more recently, I just watched The Artifice Girl, and I recommend it. It's basically, you know, there's no explosions or anything, so don't expect to be on the edge of your seat in that respect. But as a really good um, conversation um, about what 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 it means to be human maybe maybe d and you would like to watch it actually um and sentience and all that but yeah artifice girl i think it came out like last year this year this year yeah i'm I'm not sure i this is gonna i think the matrix honestly oddly enough because it just uh is really kind of makes you think about what all is possible it's about growing like just how how the world could be um, I think it's really out there and it makes you think. But I do have want to say something uh, about The Fifth Element to Amanda, <laughs> which is I blame that movie and many others for making me expect that by now I would not be using a steering wheel in my car. <laughs> and that's one of the things where AI has really let me down. Like I thought that by now we would be fully automated. I thought there would be no such thing as bus drivers or human bus drivers. Um and we're not there yet. So yeah, that's been an interesting uh, thing to watch. Yeah, I think we were all scared about Skynet and not about like, um, you know, getting us getting passed over for loans. So it's like AI is scary, but just in different, different ways. There's no Terminator, but um, you may yet. have that loan for yet. stupid yet. reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Um, AI has gone from science fiction to reality at a rapid clip this year. We're seeing tools such as ChatGPT and Dolly be accessible to the masses and consumers got a taste of what all the possibilities are. But that's just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And as Amanda and Elaine called out, there's so many more applications for AI. It's important to note that not all these applications could be benign or beneficial, as uh, these things such as deep fakes could very well be used for malicious causes. And let's not discount the very real possibility of a real-life Skynet in the not-too-distant future. From myself and Jellyfish, a big thank you to Elaine and Amanda for joining and for you to tuning in and learning about all the things uh, AI-related in, in the world of advertising. I'm Shamshul Chowdhury speaking from New York. Be sure to tune into our next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform you use to stay updated on your latest episodes. And do leave a review. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback about the show, send us uh, an email at thecurrent at jellyfish.com. We'd love to hear from you. The Jellyfish Current is produced by the editorial and production teams at Jellyfish. We want, if you want to learn more about us, you can visit us at jellyfish.com. Thanks and see you on the next episode.